Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. Before we get started today and get into my fascinating discussion with Dr. David A. Banks, I felt the need to point out that the discussion in question was recorded several weeks ago before the revelations about Facebook's involvement with data firms like Cambridge Analytica, and certainly before Mark Zuckerberg himself testified before a joint Senate committee. So it's not quite up to date. But many of Dr. Banks' insights about social media and the firms that possess our data prefigure the actual events we're seeing now. So that's a point to him as a digital sociologist. And I plan on trying to get him on the show again later in the year to talk about what we're seeing in the news, uh, if that interests you. And if it does, you can let me know by tweeting to the show at at EISTpod on Twitter or dropping us a line on the <gasps> Enterprising Individuals Facebook page if you're brave enough. Or you can reach us at EISTpod at gmail.com. And if you haven't yet, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod and see about maybe becoming a crew member on the show. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoy the episode and let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and personally, I'm wondering about the state of parenting advice literature in the 24th century, because I feel like step one is, keep your child away from the malfunctioning Borg drone. I'm joined on this episode by Dr. David A. Banks. David is a writer, researcher, and teacher who holds a Ph.D. in science and technology studies. He's an editor-at-large for Real Life Online Magazine and co-editor of Cyborgology for the Society Pages, an online open-access social science project. His work has been featured on Real Life and Cyborgology, as well as in The New Inquiry, The Baffler, and McSweeney's. He's also a co-chair of Theorizing the Web, an annual conference that examines the interrelationships between technology and society. David, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about The Voyager Conspiracy, the ninth episode of the sixth season of Star Trek Voyager. Star Trek as a franchise is no stranger to exploring social issues, with some of its earliest episodes tackling themes of racism, fascism, religion and dystopianism, and economic disparity. And the franchise would graduate in later incarnations to explore themes of mental illness, PTSD, civil disobedience and insurrection, governmental responsibility, and same-sex relationships and transgenderism. But as a work of popular fiction, Trek has the additional goal to entertain as well as provoke thought. And it's a testament to the talent of the writers and production staff of the various Trek series that it so often succeeds in doing both. But we will definitely talk about that a little later in the show. First, David, let's talk about your backstory. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I, I think like, a, like a, a lot of people, it's hard to remember exactly <laughs> sure. when. But, you know, I, um, I, I have really vivid memories of probably around like middle school of, um, you know, uh, sitting down with, uh, with my dad and watching... Uh, uh, Star Trek Voyager at the time we we liked we liked Voyager. Sure. Um, I didn't I didn't get into Deep Space Nine as much. I would usually catch like the end of it. Although 
now I've gone back and watched the whole the whole series, and um, I might like it more, or at least I, I like uh, Ronald D. Moore's touch to it. Yeah, and and um, uh, once he got out of the Roddenberry box, and and um, uh, and, and the the uh, um. So I, I I deeply remember that. I remember that very uh, uh, very well. I remember going to see all the TNG movies as they were coming out in theaters, and I remember uh, with my mom uh, always watching uh, the quote unquote whale movie, you know, the Star Trek <laughs> IV: The Voyage Home. Yeah. we had that. We had that on VHS, and that that uh, that got well worn. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it just uh, it's just sort of like always been a part of my life. You know, like I. I, I I bought the 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 paperback books. Um, I was I was stoked uh, when you first emailed me to hear that uh, uh, Gre- uh, Greg Cox had been on here. Is yeah. like that was, like I listened to his or read his books um, a bunch. Uh, I love the eugenics wars. So it's a uh, you know I I just um, I, I just remember being surrounded by it and um, uh, and, and 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 as I uh, started. Uh, getting in my career as an academic, I, I, I found myself constantly going back to Star Trek as like, as, as an allegory or as like a, something to, to think with, um, to think about social issues. Um, sure. because it's, it's, it's just so, it, not only is it easy to do, but it, it's actually pretty rich. And, and so that's, uh, that's been my relationship with Star Trek for forever. Yeah. Sure. As someone who studies and lectures on the interaction between society and technology, have you been able to utilize examples from Trek in your work? Uh, um, I use it a lot in uh, in my writing, and uh, you know, on my website, I have um, sort of a, a hodgepodge list. It's not even uniformly uh, formatted, but you know, it's a it's a list of just sort of what uh, episodes go with what sort of social issue. Um, I don't. I usually don't subject my students to like watching a whole episode. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, and then I'll be like, "Hey guys, Joe, do you know? Note it's interesting in episode three, season five. <laughs> you know, I like. I I, I have. I haven't done that, but um, but it is. It is. Uh, it is pretty useful. Um, uh, at, at least in my mind, in the background to to think with. Um, one of the problems with with it now is that it's 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 kind of hard to kind of excuse to like watch a 90s sci-fi movie in class you know but, <laughs> hey uh, guys easy credit <laughs> we just watched right, star yeah. trek yeah i mean like sometimes i i do have I, I do actually have extra credit for um watch for like watching some things and and star trek might might make a i think it, star trek was in in a rotation at some point there were a couple episodes um and i might i might bring it back that's cool as an academic, when you watch Trek, do, do you watch as a media researcher, or can you turn your academic brain off? Oh man, I, I don't think I can. No, <laughs> pretty it's pretty much always on, um, and, and you know, and that that of course makes for a great uh, Monday morning screenwriter uh, talking. Like, why didn't they go into this? Why didn't they go into that? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, because that's uh, um, I I always I I always want to know more about like the you know the society that 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 made like people who have all the creature comforts in the world, like abandon those and go like get eaten by a, a, a sentient cloud of energy or something like why, <laughs> what tells people to go do that. Sure. It's, it's so, it's so weird to me. Um, and usually what I always come back to, um, is that, you know, the idea that, you know, uh, we, we're humans aren't compelled by 
by by money or by like you know they're compelled to survive and we live in a society where you need money to survive right. but absent that you know people do th- do productive interesting and even dangerous work uh out of um you know se- uh self-actualization and yeah. out, of, out of curiosity and and that, that's always and i know that's sort of like the basis of uh, of roddenberry star trek but it, I, I like how it's kind of continued on and that that's uh and then, and then that something with that sort of message is in the public consciousness like so in in the forefront you know yeah something to cling on to you mentioned the roddenberry box before and just his methods and i think that that's you know that's clear as far as a um uh, a study of uh, a utopian society, you know, it's it's very shallow. It's just like as you said, once you have everything you want, why would you go out and get eaten by the cloud or a mugato or whatever? And the series just kind of takes it for granted. Well, clearly, we'd want to do good things, and it never really explores that. Uh, if it, do- I mean, a, a Trek show where we just get into that and explore that might be interesting, but it kind of takes it for granted so that we can then go out and find the energy clouds or, or the what have yous. I, I, ho- I still hold out hope that, you know, maybe one of these CBS all access shows that we'll, that we'll get. I don't know if they're still going to like, I remember hearing a rumor early on that they would do a different crew every season or something. Yeah. And and if that were ever the case, I I would just like love a series either at the very very edge, but still connected, so not quite Voyager, or uh, but past the Voyager timeline. Yeah. Like, what do you do after the Dominion War? Right. I, I thought it was just like such an obviously rich, interesting uh, setting for uh, for 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 Star Trek to tell a Star Trek story, or um, or on Earth and basically do um, you know. Uh, uh, the the politics of of um, full communism, I think, is fascinating. Like, what? Well, gosh, what would that even look like? You know, yeah, right? <laughs> um, I, I think that could be really. I think that could be really interesting. But uh, obviously, I'm not most people. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a hard sell without the photon torpedoes and Vulcans. Maybe, maybe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, steering away from Star Trek for just a moment, um, I was reading an article of yours from the New Inquiry about NPR's podcasts. Oh, and man. you characterize them as uh, mainly as liberal infotainment uh, that depoliticizes important issues by converting them to cocktail party chatter. And ow, I, I have to say that that hits me right in the ear as far as the kind of <laughs> issue-based programming I choose to listen to. The point there was that you know I because I I like I'm not I'm not saying that I haven't listened to those or that I've even enjoyed uh, quite a bit of them, or that even like my friends have been on them. You know, yeah. it, it's um, the the point is that you know if you if you look at the through line, you know what connects all of those things, both like the episodes of each kind of show and all of those shows that that and I use NPR as a as a genre, not necessarily as like, you know, NPR runs or owns those shows. Yeah. Um, which that was the first feedback I got was like, actually it's on it's on PRI. Like, you know, yeah, right, right. Yeah. You know, it was like the, the <laughs> um the um the thing the through line through all of those is that, you know, you take you kind of do the opposite of Star Trek, where you take a social issue and you turn it into something that only experts can understand. And usually those experts are neuroscientists or evolutionary biologists or something like that and then say only those people can fully understand the 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 problem and the solution if there even is one is only available through further study right you know and 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 i and a lot of the times that's not true like are are people sad um when they don't have a job or when they don't feel like they have a a reason to be in the world as you know, like they, are they, are they 
meaning like are, are they like fulfilled by the the work or the thing that they do for most of their time waking hours you know um if that's not true then you know if if people are sad because of their job or or because they don't have a job and they don't feel useful you know that that's that's something we've known about for a long time it's called alienation yeah. marx talks about it and, there, and there's you know there's political programs to right. you know to, to solve those issues but instead it's like well you know we gave uh this person um you know this uh, you, we give two people two different jobs and like one we like disassemble the thing that they that they built right in front of them and we tell them to make it again and they feel disappointed. And it's like, yeah, of course. Like, like, is that, is that a published journal article? That's fascinating. What a revelation. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, I also, I read a piece uh, by your colleague, Nathan Jurgensen that was um, going after Ted talks and they're sort of setting up that uh, same thing, making something that's not profound, like this profound thing, which I'm cool with. I never really liked Ted talks, but my parents love them. And I think yeah. they really appeal to viewers who wouldn't consider themselves intellectuals or academics, but have a desire to learn or feel like they've learned something. Yeah. And, you know, and like that's and that's a impulse that we should always foster. Right. You know, like, oh, the, sure. The, yeah. Right. But but yeah, the, the, I think that I, I think that, um, you know, I won't speak for Nathan, but I think one thing that I take away from that article uh, that I really like is that, you know, it's Ted feels like it's hijacking that that desire. Right. It, <laughs> right. And it and it and it. And it takes something, you know, like legitimate curiosity and turns it, uh, uh, 90 degrees to go look at like, you know, um, something that's fairly prosaic or, or, you know, not particularly interesting, but it's, but it's conveyed in this really, really dynamite sort of way, you know, like, and there's some, some people that, you know, give Ted talks that are really great. And in fact, my, my, my advisor, my PhD advisor has a Ted talk, uh, and, you know, and, and, you know, Zainab Tufechi, Will Potter, like those, those are just three, you know, three people that come to mind. Ron Eglash is my, my dissertation advisor. Sure. Um, and, you know, in, in all three of, all three of those people, you know, have, have, have great talks and their, and their, and their work is really interesting, but, but quite often, you know, the, the, those, those Ted talks, you know, grab hold of things that are, uh, you know, it's sort of well packaged. Yeah. I think the breaking point for me was when JJ Abrams gave one and he explained uh, to the audience, his concept of the mystery box. Right. Like 20, yeah. I've seen that 20 yeah. minutes of like, Oh, so you're saying make a script interesting. <laughs> and also <laughs> right. looking yeah. at your output, uh, which is, you know, his output tends to be, in my opinion, just sort of thematically kind of bereft. Like uh, often all there is, is just a mystery that is either solved or unsolved. It's like, okay, well, what are we really learning here? Yeah. Yeah. And if, if I could plug uh, one non Star Trek show sure. that you just reminded me of. So there's there's Lost, right, which J.J. Uh, Abrams produced. Right. Is what I forgot his re relationship to that show. Yeah, was. He sort of pitched yeah. the pilot, I think, and produced. it. Yeah. So like the writers of that of that show also made um, The Leftovers. Okay. Which is which is finished, and that's three seasons on HBO. Right. They're available on HBO, and it's three complete seasons. And if you were, I never watched Lost, but I know that the ending was really unsatisfying. Yeah. But if you want a show that is in that vein and has a satisfying ending, The Leftovers. Okay. It is so good. And downshifting from utopia to dystopia, I'm sure. Yes. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The, the premise there is that I think it, like two percent of the population just disappears unexpectedly. Yeah. Uh, um, for no uh, for no discernible reason, and basically the all three seasons are no one handles that well. Right. Yeah, you know, that's that's the whole premise of the show. Yeah. 
Uh, speaking of not handling things well, uh, the subject of net neutrality has been in the news recently because of the uh-huh. FCC's vote to repeal it. I'm interested in your take on the debate over net neutrality and how you think it'll affect communities of differing demographics. Yeah, so uh, a bunch of things. And, and I've written about this too, right? You know, on, the, on the one hand, um, it sucks for you know well-financed companies like Reddit or or Facebook or something like that um, because they uh, the large technical systems rely on predictability and when you change something really fundamental to the business model that's obviously you know creates unpredictability sure and and, uh, um, and so they're they're all scrambling but then there's like all this beautiful network of like independent media centers and um, uh, uh, and, and independent content producers like yourself, for example, that that um, uh, now all of their work is thrown into question, you know, and and I th- and that's and that's really really nerve wracking, and, and uh, for a lot of people, uh, not to you know, regardless of how all this shakes out, you know, the fact that you add that stress onto onto people is pretty unforgivable. But, you know, one thing that, that, that has been driving me kind of nuts about how it's talked about is, you know, we'll, we'll be all excited when, you know, for, uh, um, I don't know, um, the CEOs of Reddit, uh, you know, take a or Netflix, like take a strong stance against net neutrality. Um, but we don't talk about like all of the unionized workers at like Verizon and Comcast who also really, really don't like this. Yeah. Um, and, and for a very... Uh, easy to understand reason, right? So the the CWA, the, the Communication Workers of America, the, the sort of national union that represents most of those sorts of workers, put out a statement with the NAACP actually to show uh, you know what the um, you know what the what the 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 dimension of of race in here is. You know, okay. a lot of a lot of workers uh, are are non-white. You know, um, uh, and a lot of the people that don't have access to the internet in the United States are are not white people and if they are white they're usually rural americans yeah. and uh they live in rural communities and um uh the cwa put out a joint statement with the naacp that said you know when you when these companies just slice and dice existing connections right you know you're um uh you're getting more you know you're squeezing more uh juice out of the same fruit you know you, okay. you're just taking a little bit more out of the existing network when all of these workers only benefit when there's work to be done on expanding the network sure. you know on, yeah. on like actually doing real productive work of, of uh, laying new fiber uh, uh, putting new cable on the poles you know all that stuff all that hard work that's very capital intensive you know it takes money yeah you know all of that doesn't happen when you slice and dice the uh, uh, the network and 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 you know throttle certain connections and make fast lanes and stuff like that, yeah. Like and so it's it's um it doesn't work for really anyone except for you know the couple of uh, hundred uh, um, shareholders and and CEOs and high level management that that will get a big windfall uh, from this. Yeah. Well, I'm just worried because you said that my my show is in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I got to start working on my TED talk, I guess. Uh, can you tell us a little more about the uh, Theorizing the Web conference? Oh, absolutely. Oh, thanks. Yeah, um, Theorizing the Web is um, it's an annual conference uh, that happens um, in late spring. This time it's happening April 27th to the 28th. That's a Friday and Saturday uh, at the Museum of the Moving Image uh, in, in Astoria. Mm. That's in New York City. Um, 
uh, connection to Star Trek, the Museum of the Moving Image has a standing exhibit of Star Trek, uh, um, like a, a set props and, sure. and toys and stuff. So the, and that's really cool to go to. And um, the conference is meant as sort of a um, interdisciplinary, even non-disciplinary uh, conference where you have a, a bunch of com- uh, competitively submitted material so people submit us submit 500 word abstracts of what they want to talk about and they get uh, and um, we select uh, between a quarter and a third of those to be um, to give presentations of about 12 minutes and and the conversations uh, revolve around you know what how is the web a social uh, object you know what um, uh, what about the internet teaches us more about society. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so we're, we're not we're not really looking at you know uh, particularly or ex- explicitly technical things about the internet. You know, um, like, uh, uh, but we we're looking at you know what is the social dimension of, of 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 all of those things because we think that you know discussion of and specifically of social theory. You know, of what you know sociologists, philosophers, anthropologists. Uh, uh, legal scholars have to say sure. about the internet because all of those uh, all of those ways of knowing uh, are severely underrepresented um, in Silicon Valley and in these discussions in general. And so that this is like a sort of a, uh, an opportunity to inject all of that into um, into these sorts of discussions. Sure. It's a really fun conference, uh, um, and we stream it all. So okay. if you can't make it to New York City, you can um, you can watch the whole the whole all of our panels at uh, at theorizingtheweb.com. Great. Well, let's uh, segue back into Trek at this point. Uh, and we're talking about the Voyager episode, the Voyager Conspiracy. As I mentioned, it's the ninth episode of the sixth season. It first aired on November 24th, 1999. It was written by Joe Minoski, who is a big name, of course, in the world of Voyager. He's also a writer on the new Star Trek Discovery and has worked on DS9 and Next Gen and is a producer on the show and NPR Connection. Uh, Minoski actually was a science editor and reporter for All Things Considered and Morning Edition uh, before oh, man, his, uh, yeah, his role as a, as a screenwriter. Uh, and he's also had essays uh, printed in the, the Economist and the Washington Post and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the episode was directed by Terry Wendell, who directed 10 episodes of Voyager in total and one episode of Enterprise, Breaking the Ice. The star date given for this episode is 53329, and your assignment, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of the Voyager conspiracy. Okay. Uh, Seven downloads all of the ship's data, and in so doing, demonstrates the dangers of assuming all data is relevant and more information is always better. Is it 25 exactly? I think. I love it. (laughs) <laughs> it happens so rarely, <laughs> but not required in any case. Yeah. yeah, she kind of becomes a one woman uh, memory alpha, and that becomes a problem for her. Yeah, yeah, because the hum- because humans are uh, pattern seeking. Exactly. Right? So, so uh, she finds lots and lots of of, of patterns, none of, only some of which are are helpful. Right. Yeah. Here's some facts about the episode. This is the only episode of Voyager that uses the name of the ship and the word Voyager in its title. Uh, Albie Selznick is the actor that appears as the alien inventor Tosh in this episode. He also appeared in the Next Generation episode, Cost of Living, as the juggler in Lakswana Troy's horrible, horrible holodeck program. Uh, (laughs) He also appears in the Voyager episode Macrocosm, and he was the movement uh, choreographer for the Ventu race that's seen in the seventh season episode, Natural Law. Uh, This is a... This is an interesting episode, and, and it's a fun one, um, if it's a little slight, I guess I would say, just out of, out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially a bottle episode. 
uh, but that they get to spruce it up by showing film from previous episodes. And as such, I think it's a fun look back at all the, the crazy things that have happened to Voyager so far. Yeah, I, I was rewatching it in preparation for this, and I realized that, like, I wonder, I wonder if there was like some conversation in the writers' room where it's like, you know, Deep Space Nine is over now, and we've picked up some of those viewers, and um, and Netflix doesn't exist yet, although they probably didn't say that at the time, right? Uh, you know, so it's like, uh, do we need to like get people on board with the origin story of this of this show because this is one of the only ones that really does kind of require an origin story, like why why are these people out here? Right. Um, and, and that does it in, in a, in a kind of a compelling, compelling way. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, if it is, uh, and I'm not sure that they specifically intended it to be a bottle episode, although it does kind of serve that purpose. And as listeners probably know, a bottle episode of a show is one that uses existing sets and limited guest stars and uh, technical elements to save money. And I'm not certain, I, I know that the previous episode was one small step, which had a lot of new sets. Um, that was the one where they deal with like the mars mission in the past and the oh, next right. episode after this is pathfinder which is almost all on earth with troy and barkley so it may have been a, a money pinch situation as well but they found a fun way to to, to dress up the leftovers i think speaking, absolutely speaking, not those yeah. leftovers <laughs> i'm talking about food yeah. leftovers <laughs> um voyager's in a weird position uh because of the thrust of the show like you mentioned like you have to kind of know where it starts and they're in the delta quadrant they have to make their way back and they need to learn to trust each other um and so by definition there's a requirement of serialization in the storytelling but the producers um, reportedly rick berman in particular were obsessed with keeping each episode as standalone as possible because they have their eye on syndication voyager i think probably well no i mean both deep space nine and voyager i think are pretty held back I, I i think by by that by that desire i mean i think actually deep space nine did a better job of jumping out of it yeah and I, I don't know i don't know what the reason for that is but you know like the last what is it like the last six episodes of deep space nine they were just like you know whatever let's just like do right. a show across all six episodes and that and and i think that you know that works fairly well i think it, it, yeah. whereas with, with voyager yeah they do like those you know, like they had i think they they maybe made up for it with like a lot of two-parters right I, yeah I, right. I i don't i don't have the the stats but it seems like voyager has more two-part episodes than than most others it probably does i was yeah. talking to another guest about one of those ds9 episodes um the late seventh season ones and i think that we came to the conclusion that this is when uh, Voyager was kind of starting to ramp up. And so Berman, as an executive producer of Voyager, was was over there. He was like busy working on Voyager. And so <laughs> everybody that was left, uh, like Iris Stephen Bear and Ron Moore, got to just sort of run wild with the serialization. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, dad's not watching. Yeah, yeah. Dad's out, dad's out of town. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Voyager, Voyager tends to be a mixed bag thematically, I think. I mean, in its run, the show's without question, it's proudly feminist. Um, it also touches on complex themes like the nature of identity, um, artificial intelligence, reproductive rights, um, you know, the perils of interfering in other cultures. But I don't think anybody would hold Voyager up as being a real laboratory for social issues. You know, it tends to be seen as the one with the bioneural gel packs and the chick in the bodysuit. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm of two minds of this because, like, on the one hand, you know, the thing that I always, when people are like, Voyager's really your favorite? Like, why? <laughs> and, uh, um, my, my go-to is one, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a child of the 90s and that's just like what I latched onto. So like, yeah. you know, I, there's a bias, there's just an inherent bias there. You can't get rid of it. The <laughs> other one is that um, I, I love the the idea that a Voyager that you, um, 
how how do you and to what extent do you maintain the morals of your society absent all of the structures that continually impose that that um uh those values right, right so right. jane you know which sometimes comes off as you know like these really cheese ball scenes where you know kate mulgrew is you know having to constantly say over and over again uh you know we are a federation we are you know we're starfleet and we don't we don't do that thing or x or y thing you know the easy way out and so that's why we have to do this really complicated thing usually it's an it's a a a story tool to to explain why are we all doing this really complicated confusing thing when the obvious answer is just you know uh you know just go away right (laughs) you just leave right right or something like that um but but yeah but then on the other hand you know um Jerry Ryan Seven of Nine is on the one hand sort of like uh, obvious uh, uh, obviously meant to be, be sex appeal but also but she's also like this amazing character for to talk about um, uh, uh, neuroatypicality right you know like uh, mm-hmm. understanding human emotion she's sort of a data figure but but a little bit more social right because with uh, Spock or Data, uh, the, they like sort of never had a chance to be human. Whereas with with Seven of Nine, like there really does seem to be a possibility that she could regain humanity. Right. Uh, and and that I th- I feel like the the um, uh, the outline of the character seems a little bit more dynamic in that way. Like she's allowed to sometimes have emotions, or we're allowed to look through what happens when someone who usually uh, doesn't have emotions or is in some way emotion uh, or psychologically distant from their own emotions, like experiences them and works through them. I, I think that that's, that's, always, that's always really fascinating. Yeah. And also the idea that she thanks to what uh, the Borg, you know, did to her, um, if she becomes fully human again, does she lose her advantages? You know, if the bionic woman can regrow regular legs, can she jump really high and run really fast still? And so what is, what is she trying? She's trying to regain her humanity, but also enjoy the advantages um, uh, that she's got in the way that her life is now. I think with, it's kind of a, you know, have your cake and eat it too, or maybe complain about your cake and eat about, eat it while you're complaining about it. Um, <laughs> that people seem to complain about seven. And of course the sort of appeal of the character, which is um, evident, but also nobody seems to ever say it was a bad idea and let's get rid of her. Like, you know, the right. ratings went up and I think that she was the focal point of a lot of, of the really good storytelling in the sort of middle part of Voyager. Um, and also, as you mentioned, because of the nature of her character, it allows them to tell all these stories um, from a technological and sort of psychological perspective. Something that we've talked about on this show uh, a little bit, but a lot more on our Star Trek Discovery show, Discoverage, is the state of cyborgization and transhumanism in the Trek universe. And Seven is basically all of the arguments, both for and against it. Um, earlier shows, they, they never really even try to suggest that the future would be uh, about or contain bionics or man-machine interfaces. I mean, Jordy and Picard are cyborgs technically, and Nog has a prosthesis, but but nobody's jacking into the cyber matrix or crushing anything with their bionic hands, you know, on this show. Right. And Discovery has seemed to say, well, screw that, and they feature a panoply of cybernetic aids and affectations. So I guess my question for you, my question's twofold. Why, why do you think that Roddenberry's vision didn't include human enhancement, and why do you think that the world of Discovery uh, does? Huh. 
Oh man, that's hard. So, uh, uh, so there's, there's one, I, I guess the, the go-to answer would one be that, uh, they they uh, there's the the Botany Bay episode where you know we we explicit we explicitly talk about how we don't do genetic alteration sure. you know we don't do alterations and and stuff like that but I I, I as a, the social scientist in me says you know like um, over um, the difference is clear from uh, between the 60s and then the the inflection point is like the mid 80s and then um, uh, the 90s, you're sort of in the postmodern uh, era, but so in the 80s, there's uh, a quite a bit of reckoning in academic circles and literary circles about you know like what's what is an ideal person and how does that ideal person relate to um, ideas of nature and of artificiality and, and of technology mm. and um, you know like the big name there is Donna Haraway. Hmm. Um, who uh, famously wrote the essay, um, you know, like, uh, about uh, not wanting to be a uh, a goddess. She's a cyborg. You know, the cyborg manifesto, <laughs> as it's usually called, it's, it's it's in several different iterations, sure, uh, and versions. But the the essential premise is that um, you know, feminism, the uh, so called second wave feminism, the feminism of the of the '60s, um, uh, sort of essentialized women. Uh, well, first it, it said uh, women, womanhood is biological in, okay. in most cases, right? So, so trans people are excluded from there, right. and and that it's um, uh, and that it's it's some it's a connection to nature and the moon and 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 uh, 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 you get all these goddess figures, right? right. Gaia figures, right. Uh, and she said, and Donna Haraway said, no, actually, I don't want to be a goddess. I want to be a cyborg because womanhood is not only uh, not dependent on on my biological essence, but or like the body that I walk around in, but it's also it. Uh, uh, we shouldn't, you know, cut off women from the everything that is technology because technology is sort of society made concrete or tangible and so to hmm. say that womanhood is outside of technology is to you know really you know cut off a lot of a lot of good options right sure. so it's a um uh, and, and and i think that that's um this is a really top-down uh view of the world and I, I don't think it quite works this way but for uh um efficiency sake you know I'll say you know like that sort of leech that that really niche conversation leaches out into society in all sorts of ways. You know, you get like, you know, MFA students, uh, you know, with that on their mind, writing stories uh, yeah. quite often. Right. But then you, you just sort of, it, it just becomes part of the, of the general conversation that, um, that maybe, uh, 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 gender isn't all about the body. And so, and if gender isn't about the body, maybe lots of other things that we usually uh, assume are, come from, uh, our biological being really isn't and it's all subjective or it's all um open to interpretation or or, or to be changed sure. and and so and, and with um uh and with discovery uh i i i think it might also just be one it's cheaper to put on a prosthesis for someone for no you know real good reason sure um right so it's, so it was one there's sort of a, a that but also i think it, it's a it's about body acceptance you know and like showing lots of different people and lots of different abilities to to move around and uh you know you see you have you uh you also have 
you're also in the middle of a war. Yeah. And I, and so, and I think it's actually a lot more, uh, realistic to show a lot of people patched up or otherwise, you know, yeah, damaged because physically damaged because of, uh, something that they went through. So I, I, I think it's, it's a mix of all of those things, you know, what, what is visible in society and what, uh, uh, how we think about bodies and then also sort of the, the, the economics of, of props. I think all of that, yeah. all of part of it. The, the longstanding ban on uh, genetic like research or enhancement in Trek is fascinating to me because it's something that clearly has just been carried over from earlier, um, sort of iterations of the universe of the story. And it's never been looked at again. And it, I think it really ought to be because, Sure, you've got this society of equality and that doesn't want to confer um, an unfair advantage on anybody who can't have access to a certain advantage. But you're telling me that they really don't. They must fix genetic defects like in the womb. They must have that capability. Like how do they decide, no, this is the baseline sort of uh, human genome. And if you go outside of this, bad news. And you can make changes or do experiments as long as you're trying to get back to this human genome that we've got you know, locked up somewhere in, in Greenwich uh, at the Society of Weights and Measures or whatever. Like you can only <laughs> do this template, uh, especially in a world where you've got human Vulcan hybrids and you've got all kinds of things going on, but they've just said, no, we're not. Because this one guy uh, back in the 90s and then later on uh, with Captain Kirk uh, kind of messed around a little bit. Like we can't ever do this again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think um, I think it's definitely gotten a lot more. That story has gotten a lot more complicated as um, uh, as as I think as society gets a little bit more um, both comfortable and uh, 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 versed in what it means to change genetics. You know, sure. like on the one hand, um, we we've we have discovered that uh, genetics are way more complicated than we initially thought, right? And that and that they don't and you can't you know we we uh, you know we mapped the whole human genome and then we found out that there's not a whole lot you can do with that map. You know, like like or at least not as much as we thought. You know, we thought that once we mapped the human genome, we could make uh, a uh, a con or something, and right. we, and we just can't um, because genes get expressed as a function of the environment as yeah. well. Right, so none of that works. But I, I think it's also uh, that the, that conversation changes over uh, re- you know like our real time because you know, the, it, it, immediately after World War II, um, you know we're still reckoning with uh, those countries, namely Nazi Germany, that did go full hog on on, on, on eugenics, and right, right. obviously that was. That that was terrible, but but um, uh, but you know prior to you know the Nazi the you know the, the Nazis project uh, of the Holocaust, uh, most countries were pre- were experimenting with eugenics. You know, in, in the United States Supreme Court in the I think in the 30s um, actually ruled that uh, um, I don't remember the the exact term of it. I think it's called like negative eugenics, where essentially you can keep people from reproducing you can't alter right. people who are reproducing but you can halt certain people from reproducing yeah you know that's how you get these like forced sterilization programs right, right. Uh, that were um you know these other horrible things that happened um uh mostly to to black people and to uh that you know you, you sterilize them so that you know you you keep that that group of people out of the 
out of the future, basically, yeah. right? You're erasing them from the future. Uh, and a lot of countries were, 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 were really experimenting with this very, very strongly. And, and even, you know, the, the idea of the, um, uh, of the mugshot was uh, at first it, with the, with the recent invention of photography in the late, uh, 19th century is, is all a project of, um, trying to figure out what is the, the trend in human biology that can, that we can link to criminality. Okay. So like, what are all, what do all these criminals have in common? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, physio physiologically that we can go find and then like, uh, clean out of the gene pool, right? So, which is why uh, a, a really early um, mugshots, if you look at them, it's a face, but then also their hands are sort of outstretched in front of them. Yeah, yeah. And it's, they thought that there was, there might be something like the shape of the hand sure. was also part of uh, uh, part part of your criminality. And you know, and you get like the weird phrenology where they're like poking you know, they your shape of your head right. matches your personality or some yeah. weird stuff like that. Yeah. You know, so I, I, and and now I, I think we're we're well past one thinking that genetics is like the lock and key to human potentiality. So so that I I think it comes off as a little like an old school. Yeah concern right and, yeah, like now and, we're we're just not quite as concerned with genetic engineering because we're bad at it like it doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon yeah so we're not we're not uh, uh frothing at the mouth about it and uh for creators like uh, roddenberry and like gene coon who literally fought in a war uh over issues like this i yeah. could see them backing away from that as a topic to really write about or, or, or writing about it as explicitly a bad thing, yeah, right? right. The, the genetic engineering is a thing bad people do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, liberal democracy is about embracing uh, uh, differences and finding unique niches for everyone, depending on their, you know, on, on who they are. It's not about finding the best uh, category of people and and perfecting that. It's about finding how everyone works together, right? Like that's that's the Star Trek ethos, right? Right. You know, so it, it works. I think it works pretty, pretty well. Yeah. Trek is yeah. it gets some things right as far as the future goes. But for all of its uh, impressions, it never really predicted the extent of the web. There's there's a funny yeah. scene in a DS9 episode where the crew goes back to like, I don't know, the mid 21st century or something. <laughs> and they meet the guy that owns the Internet or whatever. <laughs> and Dax uses his computer and it looks like 90s AOL keyword Star Trek. Um, even without cortical implants like Seven has, what do you imagine the average Federation citizen's connection with information systems is like in the uh, 24th century? Oh, man, that, that's something that I, I really wish they could explore more. Because like even even in the, in the late um, uh, 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 timeline of Star Trek, each each computer each, or each uh, ship has its own like central computer. It's very IBM mainframe <laughs> yeah, sort of. right information technology ideas and and in discovery they've sort of gone like okay the computer is is an alexa right or siri right and so you can like ask it things um that are more heuristic and machine learning at, like ish right you know right so like, i think it was like in the first episode of discovery where um suru asks like what are the best traits of a captain and like compare that to me? Yeah. Like that's such a weird question I for know. a computer <laughs> and one that I don't, I don't think anything comes close to that on, on any other Star Trek no. episode. Right. Hey, Siri, like, how am I doing? Yeah. 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 I mean like there, there are ones where, um, 
like in the Voyager conspiracy where where uh, um, Seven is like asking like could a, a ship uh, um, survive a tricobalt explosion and use a tractor beam or something and the computer is like insufficient data right right um and and there it's still it's basically like doing google searches right or you're like yeah. asking <laughs> uh very specific they're like you're you're comparing tensile strengths of metals and stuff and getting back objective data but yeah. but now you're like asking computers to like am i a good captain like that's such a weird question <laughs> yeah, to ask a computer yeah um and 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 so now I'm wondering, like, yeah, what, where did the internet go with with Star Trek? And I and I I I think Battlestar Galactica got it really well, like how you can just dodge that completely and just say that's how the Cylons showed up, right? right? And you're yeah. just like. There's no network computers. Those are dangerous. Right. You know, and maybe they were right about that. I but, think that uh, it's sort of the, the premise of Trek kind of works against um, really uh, putting elements of our future in it as well in terms of human space exploration. I mean, everything points to we're just going to send remote drones out. Essentially, we're going to send robotic ships uh, out there that are networked to explore. There's no reason that we need to go out there. And that's that's the whole enchilada for this show that humans you know, it's been a long road getting from there to here. You know, <laughs> wooden ships, we're going to go out there and be the spirit of adventure. And I have a couple yeah. friends um, in NASA and JPL, and they that's something that they have to sort of deal with every day. But, of course, they're on board because that's what they do. Yeah, we're sending probes right. out. We're getting this information. And it would be cool to stick yourself on a ship and go out there. But it just doesn't seem like it's something we're going to be able to do. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, actually, as you were saying that, I just realized, you know, probably the Internet is probably a lot less compelling when you have um, uh, transporters. Right. Yeah. So, like, uh, this is this is a common um, uh, uh, critique from uh, Internet studies folks where, um, you know, it, it makes more sense to think of Facebook and, and Twitter and all, all those uh, in all those social media platforms as sort of like only existing because most of American most Americans live in the suburbs when they're young yeah right and your your body is like you can't physically go see your friends a lot of the time because you're in like a a, a ranch house that's like not connected you know, like it's miles away to your friends and stuff like yeah. you're very geographically dispersed yeah um, and so you get like these like not quite as good social connections through over the internet um, and, or, or, and, you know, and of course that's not true for everyone and that's very, you know, it's, uh, and, and it, and it doesn't explain why, you know, most, you know, 4 billion or 3 billion people in, in, on the world, ha you know, like use the internet regularly and have a Facebook account and stuff. Right. But, um, right. So it doesn't quite explain that, but I think it, I think there is something about, uh, the, the fact that you can't, um, that you know, like if you, if you truly overcame geography through the transporter, then I, the the value proposition of of Facebook uh, of Facebook just doesn't seem to make as much sense, right? right. So you can go actually <laughs> see that person, and if you're living under full communism, you have the time to do that, right? Right. So, right. so a lot of those, um, uh, or or at least if you live in some sort of socialist utopia, you have the time to spend to spend with the people that you want to spend time with. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> a lot of social media and the internet is all about you know, making a little bit of time for uh, a little bit of conversation in between 
your second and third job or something. Right. It makes me think of the circuit in Logan's run, uh, where they can oh, just, sure. you know, beam themselves to other people's houses and then, you know, get it on or I guess do whatever. Right. Yeah. Do you yeah. think that they have social media or a digital duality to their lives in, in the 24th century? Huh? I don't think, I, I don't think so. And the only reason for that is because I've also studied, um, train, the, the relation, the, uh, the, um, uh, the reaction to trains okay. um, in, in the, in both in the UK and in America. Yeah. And what we said about the internet, uh, what we're saying about the internet now, we said about trains almost exactly a okay. hundred years okay. ago. Interesting. You know? Um, and so I, I think, I think we'll, we'll be, uh, we'll be terrified about something else. <laughs> okay. You know, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it's usually what we do is we take the thing that we're concerned about that's like a social or political issue yeah. and we map it onto a new technology yeah, and yeah. we, and we say that the technology is causing it yeah. when usually the technology is created only because that social or political thing exists at all. Sure. Right. Yeah. You know, so like uh, why are uh, traditional family structures breaking down? Well, it's because your kids are always, you know, finding uh, other people to talk to on the internet and like, well, no, <laughs> there was like, there's like lots of other things leading up to that, you know, the fact that, you know, two parents need to have full-time jobs in order to support, you know, the economics of a, of a home. And so lots of people are, you know, and, and, and schools are, you know, uh, testing kids to death, uh, you know, um, right. uh, you know, so everyone's really busy, you know, that, that's why. And then you, you know, that might be why no one's talking to each other. Yeah. Right. You know, I guess what I really want to know is if Zuckerberg, the sixth will be on the Federation council. Uh, probably <laughs> actually he probably got strung up when the bomb started flying in world war three because the war Ooh, was started yeah. by chinese facebook ads that's a good point yeah. yes I, I i completely agree there's with a that. conspiracy yeah. theory for you <laughs> yeah um uh mark, mark zuckerberg uh is probably and, and his uh, progeny is probably probably it seems to have some sort of incompatibility with uh uh, with the uh, with the Star Trek universe, or at least I, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't, you know, like when you're strapping, um, you know, like uh, uh, warp capable engines onto a n nuclear warhead, you know, like oh, and you created what Facebook Messenger? That's interesting. Right? Like the <laughs> right. two, just like it's not, it's not impressive anymore. Yeah. To do, <laughs> you know, when, when you're when you're building uh, faster than light ships, you know, no one no one cares about your your app. Sure. Right. So no one's going to be paying attention to him. Hi, first contact scene. Right. Um, because of the malfunction of her cortical implant uh, in this episode, Seven experiences a significant behavioral change. And something that struck me is the way that Seven's condition mirrors um, psychosis, certainly the kind of paranoid delus delusions you'd see in somebody who's suffering from schizophrenia or uh, paraphrenia. And as it accelerates, it becomes specifically persecutory because Seven mm -hmm. comes to believe that the conspiracy is an effort to, to harm her. And I, I don't know whether it's intended or not. I think that it really lines up well with that type of um, mental illness. How do you think that... <laughs> actually, I'll tell you how, what I think first. I think that Trek uses mental illness as story elements uh, often, but it doesn't tend to vi uh, explore a mental illness very well, in my opinion. It explores mental illness in like the blunt, clunky tools of primetime television. Yeah, right, right. right. Uh, as plot points, um, or you know, this villain is obsessed with revenge, or they're a mad scientist. And Braga, as a writer, Brandon Braga, on uh, writer for Voyager, seems to like this kind of story device of a character thinking they're going crazy. Um, he wrote the TNG episode Frame of Mind, 
where mm-hmm. Riker was yeah. at the you know, institution. Yeah. And there's other plots in Trek involving mental health, like Whom Gods Destroy, you know, The Wrath of Khan sort of deals with obsession, but it's generally just a plot device. Although Seven herself is often used in Voyager to explore things like this. Um, she goes through several episodes, literally, uh, of sort of mental illness in things like um, Infinite Regress. That episode is the one where she's recovering these uh, personalities of other assimilated people from the collective. Um, and she goes through hallucinations and things like that. So mm-hmm. I, I just kind of wondering, like, you know, we talked about all the things that Trek hasn't covered, social media uh, and genetic engineering. And so I'm wondering, like, what you think the writer's intent was as far as exploring mental health issues in the future. Yeah. So what, uh, one thing, here's a conspiracy uh, uh, of conspiracies. Bring it on. So, so uh, the Voyager conspiracy, season six, episode nine, season six, episode nine of Deep Space Nine is statistical probabilities. Ooh. Where all of the genetically enhanced people right, uh, right. get brought to Bashir to try to solve the the um, or, or do like basically uh, uh, um, stats work be be the Rand Corporation right. for right. Uh, for the Federation to figure out the Dominion War right and and they come back with uh, uh, surrender like that that saves right. the yeah. most amount of lives is just surrender to the Dominion and of course no one can handle that and and. and and that's really just like a matter of, of scale, right? Like that's, a, or at least it's presented as, you know, just thinking about things at different scales, and and you know, and pride enters into is actually ends up being more important than, uh, than saving lives, or at least that's an interpretation that you can make of it, right? Right, right. Um, uh, so, uh, but, but with the Voyager conspiracy, I think, um, yeah, I think you're right that it that it does sort of in some clunky way deal with, um. Like some of the things that are that uh, uh, people with schizophrenia uh, are are uh, maybe sometimes stereotypically uh, assumed to have right uh, these super paranoid um, delusions about everyone out to get you because that is how that episode ends. Yeah. Also, that episode ends with her with Janeway and Seven beaming off the Delta flyer and I was like, well, doesn't someone have to drive yeah, the Delta flyer back to the ship? But yeah, it, 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 I think that is really, really clear that um, it's that uh, it's an episode about uh, how if you take too many things as connected or as related, um, you'll drive yourself crazy. Yeah. Specifically because um, uh, fun- you know, like, uh, normally functioning humans ignore a bunch of stuff, right? Or, right. or in their um, or, or they they uh, ignore contradictions, or they accept contradictions as uh, as normal, uh, or uh, or they're constantly they will um, accept one part of the contradiction, but never both of them at the same time. Yeah, right. Like that. That's that's what uh, quote unquote normal people do, yeah. and and people who are neuroatypical that aren't thinking the way uh, a lot of people do are. Um, uh, uh, are uh, fixate on those those issues and um, and are and and uh, and are usually then unhelpful to to everyone else yeah. if uh, uh, if they can't um, square it with with 
you know, the rest of society, right? You know, you're just like constantly going out thinking, making all these connections that aren't useful to anyone or actually harmful the way Seven does. Yeah. And she, um, she begins sort of um, pre-morbid as well in her personality because she's already somebody who is emotionally repressed and tends to be unsociable and solitary. And so she has no kind of emotional framework to, like you said, let that sort of pressure bleed off. She's used to uh, acting unilaterally. And so when she gets all this information for her, uh, especially, you know, when her implant is damaged or whatever, the solution is find a solution. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and like it, it, a lot of her, her um, very directness or like uh, uh, the, 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 her lack of interest in, you know, um, saying please and thank you or, <laughs> yeah. or, or just, or like, you know, calling you, know, she always calls Bolana at like 6am or something like that. <laughs> right. You know, um, you know, like th- those, those can all be read as, you know, um, or a relate uh, similar to you know like maybe someone with Asperger's or something right like someone who doesn't uh, read other pers- other people's personalities or or um, emotions very well or they don't take social cues yeah very well right and like and and, and that that is quite often you know so, you know I'm not a psychologist but you know like the, the, a lot of those overlap with with some of these you know schizophrenic conditions mm-hmm. where you know uh, you ignore other people's um, uh, emotions or concerns or something like that. So like when in the beginning of the episode where she does make that useful connection of all those different things that end up what was it? It was like photonic fleas, I think, or, yes, right. or, sap, or sapping uh, the energy conduits of energy or something like that. And the, the sensors yeah. uh, go nuts, right? Like that's um, like that's useful. And sometimes uh, um and a lot of times society does try to take advantage of mental illness to uh, people's um, uh, 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 benefit, right? So like like uh, oh, yeah. that Deep Space Nine episode, statistical probabilities, where they're taking people and trying to use them uh, in the way that they are that they are useful as uh, or at least for that society, right? As, yeah. As savants, that would be a more interesting episode, I think, if there was an act in this where they kind of beautiful mind her and like they have to use this ability that she's discovered to see the connections between things to figure out something very critical. And it comes down to, you know, doing harm to her over the long term over solving whatever this problem is. And they sort of pull back because otherwise it's just, yeah, we know that it kind of works because she finds the fleas. But then the rest of the episode, it's. Uh, look at this star date uh, fifty seven oh five. I bought some peanut butter. Star date fifty seven oh five. You were eating peanut butter. You stole my peanut butter. Like it, right, it becomes yeah. these things that you know we as the audience and really the crew too doesn't really believe. Yeah, yeah. We would uh, we would focus on some sort of like what is the moral? What are the moral conditions under which you can make someone experience that yeah. for an extended period of time? Yeah. Uh, and like, how does that relate to uh, the benefits that other people accrue? for her suffering like that yeah. right like uh, um uh, uh as I, i'm thinking of well i yeah i guess like yeah like like you said beautiful mind right like that's uh you know we, we let uh john nash live like that for a long time to <laughs> right to, to 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 run all these sorts of experiments but you know uh, um but yeah you know, I, I think it would also be sort of like a like a another voyager uh and a two-parter the like equinox right where they find another ship, yeah. um, and they've been sacrificing these uh, little um, the energy uh, alien things. Energy alien things, yeah. yeah. You know, like um, like they're doing some. They they've made a 
dubious moral calculus and are and decided to do the thing that the audience is set up to not appreciate. Yeah. It's also um, on discovery um, Stamets and his right. connection to the, to the spore drive. Exactly. Yeah. yeah um, uh, and so, and, and notice in all of those um, the, uh, there's a writing decision to make those aliens very unhuman. Right. Yeah. So it's, it feels more like animal abuse than, uh, than like uh, genocide or, or, or uh, you know, like a, a tor- you know, human torture or something like that. Mm. Whereas if, if you were to take seven of nine and say, oh, well, you know, running the ship's computer through her cortical implant actually does a lot of useful things for us. You know, we could imagine an episode where, you know, like there's a very somber uh, all hands meeting where they're like, yeah, we probably shouldn't do that. But <laughs> right. and then. And then and then maybe one person playing devil's advocate and and, and then two box saying like it, it the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. and then sure. they're like oh right 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 sure and then <laughs> you know uh, and they've um, already got a guy like that in sickbay you know a guy yeah. that they um, they use as a tool who is quickly becoming you know human or close to human right you know like the yeah the way that uh, uh the doc- I, the doctor is a great um, way to look at uh, casual racism, yeah, I think. Yeah, you know, where we're like every once in a while, Janeway is like, eh, but yeah, but you know, and you're not a real person, <laughs> you know, and, and 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 he's like, whoa, what, what the hell, man? And you know, and and and, uh, uh, and, and then and then the, the show just keeps going on, like they don't explore that. It's just like this is just some casual mean thing that we say to this main character that's like deeply, you know, it's not just like ah, we rag on Harry Kim. It's like. Yeah. It's like, no, this guy is uh, like we don't recognize his humanity sometimes, you know, <laughs> right. But sometimes we do, which is even worse because they just like do it when it's convenient almost because then there's that um, that episode uh, where he writes a book. Um, yeah. Photons be free. Right. Yeah. And then it and then it that that book ends up with um, all of the uh, EMHs that were decommissioned as EMHs and are like doing. Uh, mining work right and the episode ends with them sharing photons be free and then we and then it's over and then the episode's over and we never revisit that yeah and it's like isn't there <laughs> is there some sort of holographic revolt right that uh, that's that the federation is suppressing and if it or did they just like shut them all off and what sort of moral calculus is that oh, like because if they're if they're sentient human beings like data is then, like, what did you just do if you just, like, hit, you know, like, set them to factory default? You know, right. like, what? It's a digital holocaust. What is that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Voyager yeah. got real good. And I would like to say it's a, it's a construct of, like, the fact that they are heading in one direction no matter what. But Voyager got real good at leaving things like that behind, but then never really, like, acknowledging it. Yeah, yeah, they did. Sadly. Um, just uh, on the topic again of mental health and Trek, you know, there is a counselor uh, on the bridge of the Enterprise D. So clearly they wanted to at least try to address um, the mental health of the crew or the, uh, in storylines. And you get a character like Barkley on TNG, who they were clearly comfortable using as a vehicle for um, you know, depicting mental illness on the show, but they never really go anywhere great with it. Yeah, yeah. B- Barkley's character... Uh, has so much potential and then never really I never I'm never satisfied with a Barkley episode because it's like yeah like what what would happen if someone in the 24th century is addicted to hologram to like being in the hollow suite yeah you'd have or, to imagine it's something that would be significant <laughs> yeah yeah it would be like a serious concern and then, and actually the thing is like that's 
that's both interesting and kind of annoying is that like this society would definitely call it hollow addiction when it is in fact social anxiety, right? Sure. He suffers from serious social anxiety and he programs holodeck uh, um, programs to um, be really nice to him, right? All of his holodeck simulations are people telling him that he's smart and interesting, <laughs> right? Right, and and that's you know, like that's not about holograms, right? Yeah. That's about his you know, like his, like his sociality. Yeah. Um. But but the show instead of really covering that, it calls it and deals with it as hollow addiction. Yeah. In the same way that like sometimes you know you hear about like people addicted to their cell phones, you know, like addicted to their phones <laughs> yeah, when right. when in fact like there you know there's something social They're going communicating. on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, not only are people communicating on their phone, but if like, like, when do they go to their phone? Because it's not all the time. It's in, import, it's in, it's in specific times that I, I think are sure. important and interesting. Right. So to <laughs> but, talk about like, but NPR would, phone, yeah, NPR would tell you that they're just looking for that hit of, uh, of chemicals or, or, uh, exactly. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, the uh, it's it's fascinating. I, I think that and I might have mentioned this on a previous episode, but the holodeck would be a great therapeutic tool um, to do what Barkley is doing to deal with social anxiety, exposure therapy. There's a thing where he makes a humiliating program of Riker. Uh, right. because Riker's been yelling at him all day. And like, if I had something, if I had a hologram <laughs> that I could make of my boss, you know, to yell at him for a while, that might not be so unhealthy. Oh my God. Yeah. Or like practicing job interviews, like actually oh, sure. practicing yeah. job interview yeah. with the people that are going to be interviewing you. Yeah, man, that would, wouldn't that be useful? Yeah. I like, there's all sorts of, and, and there is like a, um, a research group in, in Stanford that, that looks at VR and, and AR as, um, mostly virtual reality as like a empathy building tools. Oh, like, sure. can you build empathy with other people, uh, through, um, like putting someone temporarily as much as possible, like in a social condition yeah. that, you know, uh, 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 that's not their own. And like, uh, uh, you know, so like we are already experimenting it with that, with like sort of the like less than ideal tools we already have that are like not even close to, you know, holodeck in terms of, you know, fidelity. Yeah. But on the subject of uh, schizophrenia, um, I was reading as well about uh, researchers using um, VR or just using computers to like manifest um, faces and like uh, personas for the voices that some people experience with those delusions and then using those faces to sort of to deal with them and sort of explore like what's going on there and it's supposedly showing how uh, that it's helping people. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah I, I, I knew you know, like schizophrenia is something that is uh, culturally contingent in a lot of ways. Like the like the demeanor of the voices. Yeah, uh, it, it's uh, it's you know in in other societies, um, you know, it, it, or at least in Western Western society, it's quite often like antagonistic, mm -hmm. uh, critical voices. But in some, uh, but in other places, in other times, it's they, they're considered they're like usually like either happy or playful or childlike. Yeah. Um, which doesn't make them any less, well, um, no. you know, distracting, right. but, you know, uh, uh, but it's, a, uh, but it's, it's interesting that if, if that's the case, then that means that there's nothing inherent to the, that there might be something social manifesting within that, that psychological condition, which, yeah, yeah which would be, would be interesting. That's fascinating. All I know is a counselor would be unthinkable on the sixties track. I mean, yeah. Bones was a bartender more or less for Kirk and, yes. and that's a sixties yeah. man psychiatrist, their bartender. There's a whole Kennedy's don't cry thing going on in the old Absolutely. track. 
Uh, this episode is also, I mean, we've been talking about this the entire time, but th- there's a conspiracy, or at least a perceived conspiracy at the heart of this episode. Um, how did you think about how the episode uh, dealt with and told that story? Did you find, did you find it compelling? Uh, I'm with everyone, uh, like most people that, that say it's just that. Kind of nuts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that well, that Voyager uh, really missed like all the tension of like two crews. Oh yeah, yeah. You're right, you know, like like could, and like the Maquis are so fascinating, and they don't they don't get nearly enough screen time. Like like oh my god, a whole a whole series of, of the Maquis I would watch for. Uh, like instantly and all the time, sure. you know, um, I, I, I love the, like, I think the Maquis are super interesting and, and um, trying, and so on the trying one to hand, do a plot. No. Oh, sorry. Trying to do a plot about distrust this late in the show, I think was kind of a mistake. Like, I think this really could have worked in an earlier season where yeah. there's still that distrust. And it's like, wait a minute, you've been doing this the entire time, you bastard. And right, exactly. there's a line yeah. near the end of this episode that's kind of like a no duh thing where Janeway's like, yeah, interesting. You're wrong. Chakotay wouldn't do that. I know him way too well. So sorry. I, I don't buy, I don't buy it. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh yeah, that, that's, that's, that sort of hits flat, right? Yeah. yeah that's sort of dull. And, it, and then they're, um, and like they're bringing back Seska, which <laughs> right. like, even yeah. if you watched that, I, I'm, I'm trying to think like, would I remember that episode like what three years after it initially airs? And like, I don't like, and it's like a, um, and like, that's an interesting plot, but it like it, you never get, because it's so episodic, like that doesn't, yeah. That, that, that you, you want to be able to like, and you can tell that the writing kind of wants you to think, well, maybe the, the Voyager conspiracy is true. Yeah. Like maybe (laughs) something is happening, which would be a much more compelling show, right? Would be if, if the Voyager conspiracy were, um, or if there was anything, the audience, yeah, right, yeah. But we know that because you know, like basically, all everything resets at the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah. That it's probably that's probably not going to be the case. Some of the strings you know? on her conspiracy corkboard are really long, uh, yes. and don't really connect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there, there's also one where like it fades to commercial when she's talking to Chakotay. When she's doing like 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 this like the other like the Janeway uh, is trying to bring everyone in or no it's when she's talking to Janeway about Chakotay right and they're like they only do like two things and then it, and then she's like still talking and face to black yeah commercial. right yeah it's like oh okay we didn't we didn't, like you ran out of of uh, of uh, uh, options there yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still like a good conspiracy story though and I think Seven of all uh-huh. people with her analytical nature and her trust issues is, you know, the perfect uh, sort of locus for this. Have you ever seen the couple of film, the conversation? I haven't. Um, it's a really great film. It's about a surveillance expert played by Gene Hackman who gets caught up in this, what he thinks of as a conspiracy um, because of something that he heard on one of his tapes. Like he's hired to tape people and spy on people. And eventually he starts to tear his own life apart literally because he's convinced that he's caught up in something. And there's also a moral element that he sort of um, is persecuting himself morally for the people that he spied on. So it sort of remind very, this is like the subspace conversation, like distantly, Mm -hmm. but it sort of reminded me of that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I watched rewatching the Voyager conspiracy. Also, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to say it reminded me of the Russia investigation. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like, Topical. The, like the Trump, like the Trump Russia investigation, sure. where it's just like, it was like, you're just, you know, you're connecting all of these, uh, like emails and, and meetings and who knew what, when, and, yeah. uh, and you know, it's like very, um, 
like, I mean, sometimes conspiracies are true, right? You know, like, but, but, uh, but it, 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 it has that, um, that shape, you know, like that, that structure of a conspiracy. Yeah. And you can hear, you can hear it when people are like, well, what, you know, like, when did this person know X versus Y? And maybe, you know, like what we think about this meeting was actually about this thing, you know, it's like, yeah, it, right. it, it, you know, just like listening to, 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 uh, um, seven rehash things that happened, uh, months and years ago, just, you know, just, it just all sounds like, you know, uh, it's, it's, it, it, it kind of makes you realize how much of news sounds like conspiracy, okay. which is not to say it's, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's a like fake news, right? Sure, it's not, sure. you know, but but, it, but it, it just sounds like conspiracy. And that's, that's so disconcerting. Yeah. When she gets her Glenn Beck chalkboard out. Yeah. And it makes <laughs> sense to her, I guess. Right. Uh, yeah. Trek had never, I'm trying to think of other examples of Trek really trying to tackle conspiracy. There's the literal episode conspiracy from uh, next generation. Um, but that's just basically, some little bugs are inside people and they want to do something bad to uh, the Alpha Quadrant. Um, our heroes kind of put a conspiracy together in the episode In the Pale Moonlight for DS9. And I think that's a great look at the other side, you know, constructing a conspiracy and then watching it fall apart. And then that moral uh, sort of issue of what do we do to keep this going, you know, to to succeed at our mission. Yeah, yeah. And that's a... That that's such a fascinating episode for for all all different reasons, right? It's like it's it's got uh, I, I just like the 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 conceit of Captain Cisco like talking directly to the camera, yeah, yeah, right, you know, and like cheersing you at the end, and, right, and yeah, stuff. right, <laughs> and like and trying to create a conspiracy, which, like you said, is you know, um, and watching it fall apart is is dramatic and and, and interesting to watch, but is also you can still see sort of like the the Star Trek like you can't be too far reaching right, right. you know it's like you, you can't uh, um you're still Starfleet officers you can't act too bad yeah yeah uh, it's, uh, which is why you give it to Garrick right well like, yeah you give everything to Garrick yeah, well, yeah. which is which, is, which, is, which I mean maybe uh, Vo- I, I think Voyager if there was like a a Garrick character on Voyager that was like one of the Maquis people you know like I maybe we could have like kept the Maquis Feder- uh, Starfleet tension going sure. a little bit longer. If you just had someone that could, that was like outside of that sort of um, morality tale. But, but then I guess they wouldn't, you know, Janeway would have kicked them off. Yeah. Roddenberry box too. <laughs> yeah. Also Roddenberry box. Uh, I should mention for listeners who haven't heard, we do have an episode where we talk about in the pale moonlight. I talked about that episode with David Mack and that is available back in the archives. So check that out. Uh, is there a moment or character or a scene in this show that really stood out for you? I mean, I, you know, obviously, you know, Jerry Ryan's acting is just yeah beyond anything. I don't know why she's not in more stuff. I don't know either. You know, it, that, that makes you feel like, uh, yeah, this she probably like, turns down a lot of a bimbo roles, I'm guessing, or at least ho- I, hopefully not now, but definitely like in the late 90s when she was looking out for other stuff. Yeah, I'm sure the I'm sure the industry has been exceptionally unfair to her yeah. because like it's like her her. Yeah, it's it her acting is just incredible. Yeah, it's um, I, uh, I, I just like every scene, Jerry Ryan just steals every every scene in the in that in that episode. Yeah, um, it's, especially the like. 
I don't like the delivery of a conspiracy is very difficult, <laughs> yeah. right? You're like how how you connect all those things and then say them in a monologue, yeah, is like is 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 incredible. I think that's just me too. I I also I particularly like and it's such a I mean you can see the strings you can see the writer's fingerprints but I do like the scene at the end where uh, Janeway beam, beams aboard the Delta Flyer and then it's kind of like giving her the, the reverse conspiracy you know like, oh god the cheese yeah the cheese is really cheesy, but it works and, yeah. then, and then even as I'm uh, I was watching it um, for the first time like I was thinking and she'll get one of the dates wrong and then seven will correct her and we'll all laugh but it just yeah. it still works like it's still you feel <laughs> yeah, the does, warmth yeah it does work yeah and I, I don't have you I, I've, I've heard this and I, I maybe you can corroborate it. Did, did Kate Mulgrew and Jerry Ryan not get along? I had heard that. I'd heard rumors too. And I read an interview the other day um, where she, Jerry didn't deny it necessarily, but she did seem to kind of laugh it off. Like, you know, I was in my early twenties and I didn't really know how to, you know, be on a TV show. And so I don't think that there's anything like lasting, but I, yeah, I think maybe there was some tension sometimes. Cause if you're, if you're uh Mulgrew, you're the first uh, captain you're um i'm just gonna guess at her age but like early 40s you're in charge of this show it's your thing and then they bring this other thing on and it's like okay i see what's going on here so i can i can understand why there would be tension on both sides yeah i i i don't know what the what the uh motivation for that tension would be maybe it's that yeah i don't, I don't know but it, it uh that, that always made me sad because like they're both so talented sure you know that's it's like one of the ways that uh, um, you know, uh, women get pitted against each other. Yeah, yeah. Is is by doing stuff like that, and and it and, you know, uh, that's always. And I think this show really sad. avoided that with its characters. Yeah, with the character. I mean, like, it, uh, um, season five of Voyager, uh, every single episode passes the Bechdel test. Right, right. Yeah. So, and 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 it's and it's still, I think, one of the like the highest performing ones on that test of like most television. Like, it, it, yeah, they did that. That worked. Uh, in an episode about conspiracies, I should really have a crackpot theory here, but everything in this episode wraps up pretty well. The only thing I can say is, where did that tractor beam come from? And, right. and that? the tricobalt device. It's never explained. Illuminati confirmed. Yeah, there are some things that, uh, like, legitimately what happened. And it almost <laughs> seems like they're... they're um, they're leaving it open for something else and they just never pick it back up. Possibly. But yeah, that, that, that definitely looks like a tractor beam. Yeah. So what what happened? Uh, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> the conspiracy yeah. is like why the, the Voyager writers felt like they could just drop things and then just never circle back around to them. Yeah, that's that's so frustrating. Yeah. yeah. I, I also like the part where, um, of course, Naomi Wildman is following Seven around like she always is. And then midway through the episode, when Seven's really into it, uh, yeah. Naomi approaches her and Seven's going to beat it out of her. She's like, who are you working for? Like, yeah, who do you work for? Run, kid, run. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's oh, that's great. Yeah, that was so good. Well, as we uh, come to the end of the show here, do you have any uh, last thoughts or parting sort of shots about the episode? Uh, um, no, I, you know, it was, um, it was, a, it was a hard bet because I, you know, like I love the, the, uh, seven heavy episodes, uh, yeah. because, because just because of like the, the rapid shot, like acting that she can do where it uh, was, I think you mentioned the episode where she go she acts out all the different people. Uh, that infinite, were, um, regress or whatever it is. Yeah. Infinite, yeah. Yeah. Infinite regress. Like that, that is like, that, that seems like she's like giving a master class in acting or something where it's just like, here's like five different people. Yeah in rapid succession is, is incredible. And, and then the, the one where, uh, uh, the doctor is, she's basically playing the doctor. Yeah. Um, is, is, is it's just, it's so good. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I really like those. I, and I just, um, 
you know, if, uh, if, if, if anyone with the, the power to decide what the next Star Trek is, uh, is listening, it, like, please make it something that's after Voyager. I just, I really want, I really want something after Voyager. Yeah. Captain, uh, Captain Seven. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I just like something that I, I want to explore what happens after the Dominion War. Yeah. Like that's a rebuilding society. That maybe also lost some of its innocence, you know, and what it had to do to to win that war. Yeah, uh, feels both very poignant for uh, you know current events, which is what Star Trek is always good at, is helping us work through yeah you know, current events. But you know, to, but also like that's that just seems such a rich and fertile like space to to tell stories in. I, I just yeah, and uh, I'd be remiss with all the author guests I've had on the show, you know, to not recommend that, you know, you go check out the books because they definitely oh, does continue um, yeah. that universe. And also um Star Trek Online has taken the sort of the universe of the show into the 25th century and okay. that has done a lot of world building there. And of course, as a video game, a lot of it is built on go get these guys because they're the bad guys or whatever. But always, you know, the the fount of Star Trek storytelling continues to flow uh, in terms of that. I got hurt too many times with badly designed uh, Star Trek themed video games. I don't know if I I I could do that. I don't know if I could do that again. (laughs) Let's talk about my space dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Uh, Well, I I guess my space dad is a space mom, right? It's it's Janeway. Yeah, I just, the, the fact that she has to, you know, keep uh, um, upholding ideals absent everything that uh, makes you, that forces you to uphold them. You know, is is I, th- I think just like a constantly fascinating uh, meditation, like thing to think about. And sure. so, I, I, and you know, there's coffee in that nebula. I can relate sure. to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 that's just that's just highly relatable. Yeah. Now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship would you work in? Uh, xenoanthropology, right? Isn't, is that what, uh, what, uh, um, uh, uh, isn't that something that shows up in in discovery now? Right. Um, it must, uh, I think, I think, I think there's a name drop for, for like alien anthropology. Yeah. Okay. And like, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stick to what I'm good at, you know? (laughs) Uh, Uh, you know, even if, uh, the Federation doesn't have, uh, social media or the internet, you can check out the digital sociology on other planets. Right. Yeah. Or, or, or maybe, you know, like something where like, you know, if you, if we invent something, you need to figure out what the social impacts of that invention would be. Right. Sure. You know, you know, I would do that. Do projections like on, that. on. Yeah. That. Sure. Projections. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a great answer. Uh, Ensign Banks, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation and they can at at EIST pod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, um, well, there, there is my website, davidabanks.org. And then um, on Twitter, I'm da underscore banks. Uh, yeah. yeah. Great. And where can people find out more about Theorizing the Web online? Uh, theorizingtheweb.com. Great. Well, thanks again for joining me. Thanks a lot. We're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Sonora.